0: Welcome back to Experience by Design Podcast, where we explore experienced designs of all kinds. I'm your host for this week, Gary David. As we reflect on this current moment in our history, it is perhaps sobering to think that it took a pandemic to create this sense of collective appreciation for those who are being called the frontline workers. At least in healthcare, we as a society for a long time now have admired doctors and nurses, Medical environments, with life and death decisions being made, have held our collective fascination as evidenced by the television shows that are focused on healthcare. And if you think about all of the shows on healthcare, there's a lot of them. From going way back, even to before my time, Marcus Welby, M.D., to a more contemporary show, Grey's Anatomy, which I've never watched an episode of. And even to Quincy M.E., who was a medical examiner. And I always had a hard time envisioning Jack Klugman as the romantic lead. But that's another story for another time. And, of course, the soap opera, the famous soap opera for those who grew up in the 80s, General Hospital. We love our medical shows. We're fascinated by medical shows. We can't get enough of them. And more and more keep coming on television. When you think the story has been exhausted, there's another medical show coming up to uh, fill, fill our idle time. But by and large, those shows focus on those who are delivering medical care rather than all of those who are involved in the delivery of health care itself. I mean, one show does stand out different in this regard, and that's the show Scrubs. If anybody's familiar with Scrubs, offbeat comedy about uh, med- medical residents becoming doctors. At least in that show, one of the main characters was the janitor and he was played by an actor named Nick Flint or I'm sorry Neil Flynn. But even that character didn't have a name. If you go look up the janitor in scrubs you'll find out that was his character's name. The janitor, he was just referred to as janitor. And while he was a major character, he didn't even count enough to carry an actual name besides whatever his profession was as being a janitor. But at least he was there. He was there in the mix, providing an essential service as a frontline worker in a healthcare environment. And if you don't think janitors are important as frontline workers, I actually wrote a blog about this point and just think about who's responsible for cleaning the healthcare environment itself when you have all those germs floating around. It's the janitors. Patient experience isn't an ever expanding area of work as hospitals, and especially hospitals in the United States for international listeners, who are trying to compete for higher patient scores in order to not lose valuable reimbursement dollars. And it's kind of interesting to see that reimbursement can be linked to patient scores of how they evaluate their services and their experiences. It's perhaps understandable that a lot of attention is therefore being paid to the patient experience as a direct of care, as a direct point of contact between clinicians and patients, and just more generally speaking, what happens when a patient is receiving treatment. However, this view is dangerously myopic. There's a lot more that goes into the patient experience than what happens when one is seeing a doctor or a nurse or getting a test. There is the entire patient journey, from symptoms to schedule to arrival, appointment, diagnosis, to payment, and many, many more steps and touch points in between all of these. And it's a very gross simplification of what patient experience is in terms of the patient journey. And even this doesn't even capture the whole story. Along with patient experience are the employee experiences of those who work in the healthcare context. Thus, rather than just thinking in terms of patient experience, we are really thinking of a healthcare experience that encompasses an ecosystem as complex as the healthcare institution itself. So to help us untangle all of this, we have on today's podcast, Steve Koch, Senior Vice President and Co-Founder of the consulting firm Cast and Hue. Cast and Hue is a company that focuses a lot of its business in the healthcare space, not exclusively, but they do a lot of work in healthcare. They describe themselves as integrating, quote, empathy, observation, behavioral psychology, and technology to, quote, cast a light on the people you serve and gain a deep understanding of their perspectives, end quote. Adam and I being ethnographers, we love the idea of focusing attention on people. That's what we do as ethnographers, right? We focus attention in context on people and what they do in those contexts, trying to understand and capture their voices. And similarly, casting you uses human-centered design methodologies to co-create solutions with their clients to help them better understand their complex environments and then design approaches to develop better experiences. So they're very much in this realm of participatory design or co-design of solutions based on design thinking methodologies. We cover a lot of territory with Steve in this podcast. We explore how human-centered design can be leveraged in healthcare environment to create not only better experiences, but ideally better healthcare outcomes and better employment outcomes for everybody involved. Steve lets us into the Cast and Hue playbook so you, the listener, can see how to use these transformative approaches in your own organization and your own work. No better time than right now to understand the healthcare experience And we hope you enjoy our chat. All right. Well, I started recording, so um, welcome. And I guess one of the first questions I had is, you know, how did one of the great things about LinkedIn is that you can see people's trajectories and try to figure out how they got from where they were to where they are. So How did you get to where you are from where you were? Based on that LinkedIn journey, because you have a lot of stuff there. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's I don't know if it's a linear path or a circuitous path of how you ended up doing this work with Cast and Hugh on on experience
1: design. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of both. Um, You know, my my career started out in straightforward advertising and marketing. Worked for ad agencies. Did. You know, I started in the mid-90s, so it was kind of the, the pre-digital era for a few years where it was all TV ads and outdoor and very exciting for a young 20-something, worked in Seattle and LA. And as time went on uh, and, and the world of communication changed, uh, my role moved more into digital, uh, some social media work, and, and but still general marketing. And I think I got to two things happen. I got to a little bit of a tipping point of there's only so much advertising you can do. And, uh, for, for some people and <laughs> started to get to that point where I thought, you know, I I've got to have, I don't know if purpose is the right word, but I I've got to get a little bit more purpose in, in, in what I'm doing. And we lost a big client as often happens in the consultant agency world. And, and so it was time to think. And, uh, it was really a convergence because the organization I was working for at the time, uh, I, was, I was doing some work with their strategy group, which included UX. And we had started, this is around 2010, 2011 or so, we had started to do some, apply some of what we considered the UX uh, uh, work to in-person experiences. So started to do, you know, learn about journey mapping and 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 steal some ideas from people we found and 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 create that. And uh, and as we got more into that, uh, we recognized that we were doing something different. And and that's when we started to think about how could we develop this into a service. And so it really became this convergence of UX into CX. Um, we were doing a lot of work in healthcare at the time. Just general marketing and things of that nature, and we started to recognize 2013, 2014, when the Affordable Care Act was about to go into uh, go go into play, and HCAP scores were going to bring in a whole new world to uh, to organizations in healthcare uh, that our work could be really valuable to them. And that, and then I was asked to join that and, and see what we could start up, and I, I jumped at the opportunity.
0: Hmm. With the HCAP scores, and it's interesting because. This is about the time, you know, or maybe a little bit before, when patient experience started to become more of a thing, you know. Yeah. And it, I teach in a UX program. Adam does UX stuff, and it's one of those, one of those kind of sticky things about what is the relationship between all of these experience channels like UX, CX, PX, fill in your own X, whatever it is. I usually say SX, but then people don't understand. I mean, student experience. I think I mean something dirty, but all of these different experience channels and you know how they both diverge from one another but also how they're related to each other and it sounds like you were wrestling with that as well as you looked took you say steal i say borrow liberally borrow <laughs> those things from ux and
1: apply them to more of a cx environment in healthcare yeah i think that's something that that we saw when we started out and i think that's something we still see today especially in healthcare and especially a lot of our work you know probably about half our work is with hospitals and health systems and I'm seeing that 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 balance, trying to figure out that right balance today between what you might call customer experience and patient experience. And if you want to start a good conversation at a hospital or health system, you say, "Well, what's when? when what's the difference between a hospital, or I'm sorry, between a patient and a customer?" And that'll get right. along for a while. But you have to think like that because what we see is the patient experience, and what I relate to that today is very much the HCAPS here's what we need to, uh, here's what we're, the government is grading us on. Um, these are key areas where we know surveys go out. Um, and it, it can affect our reimbursement and these right. and things of that nature. Uh, the more forward thinking hospitals and health systems are starting to think about customer experience. And I'm starting to see more and more, uh, organizations bring on those, those types of positions, you know, uh, Intermountain Health in Utah just brought on a gentleman from Disney and his, his title, I believe, is chief customer officer um, from Disney. Yeah.
0: That's interesting because I was, you know, do, I do some work in patient experience and there are a number of books out there about why your hospital should be more like Disney. Yeah. And people don't believe me when I tell them that there's books out there that say that. And they're like, well, wait, it's like one's an amusement park and one's a place where I get, you know, colonoscopy exam different kinds of rides, but <laughs> you know, this idea of, you know, how, how are those two things related The Disney, like wow experience and the hospital I'm coming in to get my appendix out experience.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I talk about Disney a lot, actually, when I, when I present to, to folks in healthcare, because they're, the Disney has, you know, so many great, uh, so many great areas that they focus on when it comes to, understanding the experience. And, and one of my, one of my favorite things to talk about is the peak in role. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that. And so I'll, I'll tell the story about, you know, let's think about the experience people have at Disney and there's ups and downs. The rides are great. Uh, there's the kids love it, but there's long lines. There's inevitably a meltdown at some point in the day, but what is this? The parents parents are melting down. (laughs) It's it's probably alternating (laughs) between everybody, but, uh, what what happens at the end of the day every day at Disney World or Disneyland? There's a fireworks show, and and that you know is one of the things that they that they talk about in terms of that peak enroll. And you can look and there's been some research done that uh, that you could. You, you survey somebody once an hour, every hour while they're at Disney, and their average satisfaction score is like six. And you ask them two weeks later what their satisfaction score is, and it's like nine because they think about all those great moments and then they think about those fireworks. And uh, so I presented that to a group of healthcare leaders last summer. And it turned out the gentleman from Intermountain Health was there, who then was like, "Yeah, you know, when I created that program, here's what we we're thinking." <laughs> <Am I okay?" laughs> oh, yeah. so what,
0: I'm, why don't you tell me about the thing I'm telling
1: you about? Yeah, you did? exactly. <laughs> it was very cool though, but yeah, it was it, that was interesting. But so, but what's the uh, you know what's the main end of your healthcare experience? It's a bill. And it's usually impossible to understand. It's this explanation of benefits that never matches with the bill. Um, There's the surprise bills. Uh, So the the whole, you know, something that we talk a lot about, and and it's still a challenge, is how are we going to, how can we redesign that financial experience? Because that's your peak end rule. That's that's the last thing that that whether you're a doctor's office or a hospital system, one of the last things people get from you is that bill, and, and that does not leave many people happy.
0: We actually had a podcast uh, earlier on with a gentleman named Jason Yardley from Avidine Health on the patient experience, the bit, the billing experience, and they were creating an augmented reality app on your phone that you could hold over your bill and a person would pop up and explain to you what part of the bill that you were pointing your finger at. To to your point, right, this idea of how do you create the most painful part of the journey, you know, which again, in the colonoscopy example, it's hard to imagine the bill is the most painful part, but it can be. Yeah, because not only is the financial, but you can't read the thing. It's not written right. from a customer perspective mm-hmm. and or the patient perspective in any kind of way.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, th- I think one of the other pieces that jumps out to me too, um, actually just real quick, in case listeners don't know what the peak end rule is, right? This is a psychology principle that um, we tend to remember like the most emotionally intense part of an experience and the end of it, right? Yeah. Um, And so like fireworks is a great example at Disney because it's like your day is going crazy. Like you may have loved the star Wars ride, but waiting in line and your kids melting down and it's hot and you lost your wallet or whatever. And you're going crazy. But then at the end, the fireworks and suddenly it's like, oh yeah, man, that was, that was a great day. And you're like, was it, (laughs) you know, we don't, we don't remember the crazy, the crazy middle parts. And so like the patient experience is so interesting with the question of a bill. And, And the other thing I'm thinking about with this is, you know, even, even when you, if you're at a hospital or at a clinic visiting a doctor and you have to go from, uh, the waiting room in, into the, you know, the examination room. And then you have to go get a blood test or something in the same area. And even actually, you know, is there someone there to help you know where to go? Right. Um, or like how to get there. And this is something that, I mean, I, I experienced actually a few weeks ago as I was, you know, I don't go to a giant hospital. I was going to one in my neighborhood uh, in Somerville, Mass. And, um, yeah i was going between the exam room and going to, to get a blood test and, and just this idea of like well, where where is that and someone just kind of points to the hallway and it's like um there's these moments that you notice of disconnect of that where it's like where the experience is broke where the experience is broken between two different two different experiences right and so those are these really interesting moments where it's like you see the sutures right the stitches between the different experiences and like that um to me i think is one of the most interesting and and like um like cool spaces for innovation of patient experiences. How do we stitch the different parts of the theater together? Right. Um, So like the hallway itself is, is part of it. Right. And that's also the other thing with Disney that makes me think about too, is that, you know, they, you have to wait in a, in a 30 minute line, but they try to make the line itself interesting too. Right. It's like part of the experience. Um, And that's one of the stuff they've done that's so interesting. I mean, can you imagine, I don't know what this would be. the, the, The waiting room at the clinic is somehow fun, you know, or interesting or not anxiety inducing and like, um, and then on top of that, the bill being this like, Hey, cool. I, I understand my bill, you know, as, as pieces of this experience.
0: So I have an idea for that, Adam, what if for the colonoscopy exam, the hallway was your colon. And as we are <laughs> moving through the hallway, it's like you're moving through a colon to get to the of exam. experience.
2: Yeah. The, colon, the, the, yeah. the colon
0: experience. I think we're onto something here. That's so good.
2: Give me a slide, you know?
1: All right. Uh, Watch where you step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> it's interesting, Adam. Um, to, 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 to slide away from colonoscopy for a moment, uh, but but to what you're saying, you know, we've we did some work uh, a couple years ago with an emergency department and looking at several different emergency departments to understand that full experience. And there were a couple of interesting things that came out of your example there. The first was sometimes the hospitals and health systems or, or anyone thinks that the experience starts when the person gets to the front desk and they're thinking about well, that first experience is when they they get checked in and and things of that nature but one thing we found is that just finding the emergency department that could make or break the experience right there and uh there was an interesting uh interesting uh, insight that came out of it around wheelchairs you know a lot of people get to get to emergency department and emergency room and they you know, are either not feeling good or maybe they have an injury and they need to get around. And, and if somebody was there with a wheelchair and could also point them in the right direction and either get them to the emergency room or tell them exactly where to go, it was almost impossible for that to be a bad experience because they felt Mm -hmm. so comfortable going into that. But if no one was there and there was no wheelchair, the experience almost could never recover. And, and because people had already, they get, I mean, they get to the front desk by all sorts of different, uh, you know, techniques that that are not fun, and they're already upset. And so that was one of the big findings in that in that work that we have to make sure that the not only is it when they get on the property, how do we make sure that it's easy for them to get where they need to go, but how do we prepare them for it? What what do we put on our website about what do you need to do to get there? And and so. Um, it, it is those, and, and it continues, you know, what happens when you get admitted, what happens, uh, when you even get discharged and how do you even, you know, if there was people that couldn't find their way out of some larger emergency room. So mm-hmm. those are the little things that actually make, you know, these days in a lot of areas, uh, the actual care from physicians is table stakes. Like I'm going to your, I'm going to your hospital or your medical office because I expect good medical care. Uh, and usually you get, you'll get it. Uh, but it's the little things in between that that make or break the experience
0: yeah, one of those things that makes me think of and we talked about the patient experience talked about the customer experience i also start to think about in this whole larger healthcare system the employee experience and so it does require and people are being asked to do more than just provide clinical care as they've been trained And to what extent can that add, and we're not even talking about like COVID-19 stuff right now where that's, you know, the the, the load on work is exponentially grown. But even before that, where it's like now, no longer now are you a doctor, but you're also in charge of data entry and you're also in charge of being a customer service representative. And have you seen doctors when you've gone in or nurses or their healthcare professionals be less than embracing of what they perceive as a bigger workload for them on top of what they're already doing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It's that's definitely a challenge because um, physicians and, and nurses and, and and all those care team folks are they have so much to do now. The data entry, as you said, uh, the the just keeping up with the admin work, and so it's a balance. And a couple of things we do to try to uh, keep that balance is number one is when we do our research, which whether it's through interviews or through workshops we want to get those who are delivering the care participating in it Uh, because there's only so much we could tell them with a spreadsheet of scores or even a written report. It's, it's about hearing from the patients or the employees about what their experience is and how it affects them. And then, and that helps really, you know, create that empathy. And, you know, we, we talked in our our pre-call about empathy a little bit and, and, you know, it's so important to help, uh, help drive that for, for the folks who are delivering care and they have empathy. It's natural the people who get into healthcare naturally have empathy, but it's also, there's also times when they're doing their work, uh, especially in an emergency department that you have to set that empathy aside because you have to be right. efficient and you have to, you have to, your, your number one priority is taking care of people. When we could get them into, let's say a workshop environment and, and we have patients there and they can hear directly from the patients, it, it can, it can help them think through it more and build that empathy. And then those are things they can share with their teams. Then the second, sorry, go ahead. If you have a question.
0: Now I was going to say, it seems like it's also a two way street. Cause I, you know, if I'm waiting in an if I'm waiting out in an emergency room, but even in an ER, you know, I'm irritated because I'm waiting, but then I also should hopefully have empathy for the people working there that they might be overburdened, overloaded, overworked. And My mind might go to, well, well, they're probably just having a a sandwich right now and just wasting my time, but that I also need to look at it from their perspective, and they need to look at, at it from my perspective, and by having these shared perspectives, that we can have a better sense of understanding of what's going on in both of our worlds.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and and that's you know sticking to the emergency department example that's definitely something that happens and, and you run into a trap in some places where people are waiting and that's certainly one of the most frustrating elements of it. And, uh, they feel abandoned and that's a, that's a emotion that comes right, up consistently right. in that work. And so what we find is that emergency departments are sometimes reticent to provide any sort of guidance around wait time. So if I'm waiting in the waiting room and I've been there an hour and I go up to the front desk and say, how much longer will it be? They don't want to give an answer because they don't know, you know, they they could say right now it looks like you're third in line. Uh, however, in the back, they have ambulances coming in that you don't see. And if a trauma comes in or something with a very serious injury of some sort, then they're going to jump you. And in terms of jumping the line and, um, and so they've always been, you know, this example that that emergency room had always been, they, they hadn't given those times. They just said, we'll do the best we can. Well, what we found in the research is that people said, listen, I understand. Like if I'm here for a sprained ankle or, a, you know, a stomach ache, um, I know there's more serious things going on. I just need an idea. I just need to like right. just just tell me something because otherwise I feel abandoned. And so, you know, they're they're actually rolling out uh, some pilots around some anonymous wait time boards. And how do you? But also communicating that this is subject to change. But we want to know where you are now. And um, and that got a lot of positive feedback when we went through some of the uh, some of the ideation workshops and testing with with patients because they just there's this people don't want to be abandoned and they and they don't want to be treated like a number they just want uh you know treat them like a human and be honest and let them know what's going on to the best of your ability
0: it 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 reminds me also of we had a a guest on previously who was at JetBlue, uh, liliana petrova and she was talking about you know that the 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 customer experience and the airlines and that's the difference between you know your flight's delayed and i don't know why and into your flight's delayed, and here are the reasons why, and this is what we're doing, and these are the variables we're dealing with. Give people the tools to be understanding. If you don't give them the tools, yeah. there's, a, there's a great book that I, that I read as a graduate student called Improvised News, and it's about the sociology of, of rumor. And one of the main takeaways was if you don't give people information, they will make up their own and they will construct their own story yep. and you really as a cust- as a as a business you don't want them doing that you want them to have the narrative based yeah, that you want them to have based on the information you can provide and it seems like that's exactly what
1: you're advising your clients to do as well in the in the ER environment yeah that's i i love that um i wrote that down so i can start uh uh borrowing that quote but uh give people the tools to be understanding because that's really what it's about and especially in healthcare where, where a lot of what we do uh happens there's still some leftover maybe a hangover if you will of that pater- paternalistic approach to healthcare um mm-hmm. where the doctors will tell you what you need to do and you just do it and it and we're in this era now where there there's a lot more uh collaboration in healthcare uh obviously we as patients and are are much more knowledgeable and 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 folks are working through that. But some of those, the little things about the paternalistic elements of healthcare are still there. Like, I'm not going to tell you how long to wait, because you won't understand the the world, the complex world we live in of how we bring people in by acuity, as opposed to the, what time they showed up or things of that nature. So, um, but if you start to educate people, give them that information, they are much more understanding. Hmm.
2: Yeah. No, that, that, I mean, that, that's, that's, I love the idea too of this. I, I want to read improvised news too, <clears throat> but this idea of, of like um, I mean, even around COVID right now too, I mean, as you both have probably seen there's, there's a pretty strong set of rumors flying around about the origin of the virus. We're not going right. to get into this, but, um, or not the details of it, but just like, you know, it's interesting that like, this is an example of, of what you're saying where it's like, it's a very large scale um, happening. Obviously it's it's global um, and that people want answers. They want to have some level of, of informed of what's happening, you know. And for a lot of people, the idea that nature is just random and in, in, in evolution and things happen, um, and here we are, um, doesn't feel good, right? There's no meaning behind right. that, and so we have to find some level of meaning. Uh, in in, hence why people love conspiracy theories. But um, you know, barring that for now, at least like the idea of just in the patient experience too of being in the in the waiting room and just like giving me an idea gives me some sense of control over my environment, even though it's like, I'm not going right. to do anything, but I, now I know my ass is going to sit in this chair for 20, 20 more minutes at least. Right. Um, and that I think that like, there's, it's funny because like things as simple as that, as you're saying, Steve, of like treating people like humans, um, is, is, you know, both a basic courtesy, but at the same time, like it's actually helps with efficiency. Cause the other, the other thing I'm thinking about with this is like, there is this tension between empathy and treating people like humans and efficiency sometimes. Yeah. And so I'm really kind of curious about that, that dichotomy. And so if you've run into stuff w- about that in your workshops or things you've seen in cases or like, how do you, how do you like balance those two, those two tensions or how to patients or hospitals?
1: Yeah, that's a, it, it's a, it's a really good question because I think it, and the answer is it's the person often, um, and it's also just how do you find time to make uh, help people become aware of that, help people understand that perspective because it is really easy to uh, to get on a, a pathway to efficiency, and y- y- it's almost you know uh, doctors and and other care team members will will tell you that it that that's in that protects them to be efficient and really just focus on step-by-step step because otherwise you can, you know, you can't get emotionally connected. We're seeing it. I mean, the COVID-19 is so present. Right. And we've seen that in interviews with people about how they are, you know, have to set their emotions aside during their shift. And then they, you know, get home and, and let it all out. And you can only imagine. And so um, in a day-to-day world, it, it, it's a little different. And so I I think part of it is, you know, we, we have our workshops and those are always valuable to the folks participate in those, but we're talking about 1% or less of the staff, you know, we're, you know, thousands of people working at a hospital system. And so, um, how do you bring that out? And, and, uh, it's challenging and it's something we're continuously working on, you know, for instance, how do we use the, the video to really showcase these patient stories and, and demonstrate, Uh, some of the challenges they face. At the same time, it's also a balance between there's little things uh, or big things that a patient might face in the living room or I'm sorry, in the waiting room or uh, around wait times and around just uh, having that control and that's not related to care. And so balance that between like, hey, this isn't a uh, indictment on the care you're providing, but it's important for you to know what happens when you're not in that room. And when you're not there and and there might be some little things you can do to help with it, but yeah, it's definitely a challenge, Adam. And it's, it's something that we're continuously working on. Uh, You know, part of it is who do we get to participate in our workshops? Can we get people who are uh, leaders that, that can socialize ideas very well that can take what they learn when they sit down with patients and and bring that in. Um, We also do some training with our clients so that they can bring, just some human centered design principles just around building empathy and around solving problems. And they can bring that into their own departments. And just even if it's small little exercises with groups during a weekly meeting, it can be super helpful. So part of it is just demonstrating to people that, that there, if you can take yourself out of that environment that you're working in every day and just hear from those you serve, it can help you gain perspective, help you gain empathy And and help you understand some of some of the things that 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 can uh, that can benefit your the experience for not only yourself but your patients and your staff.
0: There's this element that this reminds me of, you know, from sociology. I'm assuming anthropology is something like this as well around role theory. And it's you know, if if I'm in this role of professor, it's hard to see things from the perspective of a student. And you know, it's been a while since I've been a student, but all of us have been patients. All of us are customers. And so it is kind of interesting, right, when you start to think about trying to get people in these environments to think like to think from the patient's perspective when they themselves have occupied that role. And so do you ever try to get them to, to think about like, you know, remember back to when you were a patient? One of the, one of the things I did with a company that I was working with with their call center, I said, you know, this is a call center staff. And I said, you know, let's think about the worst call center experience you've ever had as a customer. What was it like? And then we went through that list and I said, OK, no, don't do that. That was kind of the takeaway from it. Have you ever, do you try to get them the role shift or, or, you know, think about themselves, not as healthcare professionals, but as patients as well?
1: Yeah, definitely a little bit, especially as we, uh, as we prepare them to engage with patients, because that's one of the big challenges. It's not a big challenge, but it's something that's necessary in terms of, we don't want people to go into a workshop and be defensive. And, right, and right, it's right. very easy to say, uh, oh, well, that shouldn't have happened because our process states on uh, page 46 of the handbook, third paragraph down that you should have done the, or the nurse should have done this, this, and this. Well, that, right. That's what it's supposed to happen. But here's what happened to your patients. But so, so yeah, we'll go through exercises and, and ha- you know share some stories about what's happened um, to you personally or a family member. And people have it. And some of the times it's, it's just take that step back and think about it. I will also say what's interesting, too, to connect it to this point, is that oftentimes what is a catalyst to either an organization taking action to engage with us or even further down the road, ensuring that some of the new experiences that come out of our work actually get implemented is a senior executive having an experience at their health, at their own healthcare system and, and seeing some of the things that actually happen. And it, it's it your it's your example is spot on because they can you know read all of the uh you know spreadsheets and they read the hcaps reports and and the the social media comments and things of that nature but until it happens to them or they can really experience that whether it's through a friend or something like that of that nature they it they sometimes don't take action
0: so going back to the colonoscopy example if i may yes you want, to <laughs> so they, they, should, they should have a colonoscopy at their facility and understand what that experience is like, but it's, you know, it's as not as the executive, not as the CEO or whatever CFO, but as anybody. And, and it is funny to think about the genre of movies that exists or books where doctors become patients and then come with, with this epiphany. Right. There was this, like this old movie, I think it was with William Hurt, where he was this it was on a based on a true story where this person was a very detached doctor and then becomes a patient and has this major epiphany where he then has residents wear um, hospital gowns to understand what it's like. Right. And this kind of there is a whole thing around that where the shift takes place through the physical embodiment of the role through wearing the clothes and everything else. And it's by doing so that you develop the sense of empathy.
1: Yeah yeah absolutely um i think uh we're always looking for more ways to to help people develop that empathy and um one of them that we use often is is talking to patients but i think there's i think there's probably something down that path that you're talking about um and i'm I'm having uh i i well scratch that i have a thought but it's not complete so um at any rate though but but that's I think that's the key to any successful the key to any successful experience design is building that empathy for those who are going to be implementing it. And um, just a best practice for us and something we have to really work hard with our clients on is as we go through this process, from the beginning, we need to have stakeholders involved from really a cross-functional area because we wanna make sure that people who are gonna be responsible for building, whatever it might be, it could be something technical, it could be a website, it could be redesigning a waiting room. It could be redesigning the entrance to your colonoscopy. Whatever it is, we want those people involved because they're more likely to buy in if they're involved in every element of the project, or at least a representative is. And so I think that's that's another that's just something we always think about in our work, It's that there's usually someone that comes to us that's very excited about the work, but we need to ha- help them build a cross-functional team because that's the way that, the best way for the entire project to be successful.
2: Do Do you find like is that, <clears throat> for example, in the kinds of workshops that you do at Cast and Hugh? You know, I mean, one of the one of the pieces that you talk about is using co-creation as as a kind of a method and a means to you know design with and alongside your stakeholders. And so I'm kind of wondering about you know on on what you know, the, if you have, for example, like one excited or two excited kind of stakeholders that come to you and say, Hey, we'd love to think through the patient experience in, the, in this scenario. Uh, is it kind of up to them to then figure out who might be other important stakeholders? Do you work with them on that idea of what does it mean to like, how do, how do you think about who should be on this cross-functional team at any one point? Yeah,
1: uh, yeah, we we definitely work with them on that. And, and it's, it's, about taking a step back and thinking about what our objective is, what some potential outcomes might be, and who who that's going to affect the most. And that helps us that helps us start thinking about, okay, well, do we need somebody from IT? Do we need somebody from operations or facilities? Um, you know there's there's elements like the frontline staff is 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 pretty straightforward. Let's have the the nurses physicians ideally uh we're going to have some of the 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 the, uh the assistants and and even facilities if we can um but bringing making sure that we're looking at what are the boxes that we need to check and checking those boxes and and we're not always going to get them right because sometimes we'll get to that experience design um Element and we'll recognize. Okay, we need to bring somebody in, but if we can bring them in even to the co creation or even maybe some of the testing, that will make a big difference.
0: I think this. The this. I just wrote a blog on this related to the least among us and in, in the COVID nineteen moment. The the janitors, right, as, as being a central component. The the facility. You know, people clean up the rooms. You know, if you need to control an epidemic, you need you need people to clean up and those people as an essential part of the healthcare team, whereas typically the attention might only be given to the people providing healthcare, the clinical care themselves. So I think your point is so vitally important from a design perspective of that, that, that experience ecosystem is usually a lot more than what clients think it is and usually involves people who are delivering the work more than people who are in charge of managing the work because the ones delivering the work are the ones who are closest in contact with what actually goes on in, pro- in practice versus what's supposed to go on in process.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. It, it reminds me of an example uh, in another project where we we found that uh, the security guard, at right. we're looking at multiple locations and we found that the security guard at, at one location played a huge role in the experience because of how, you know, how he greeted people, uh, how he, he took on that role of helping people find where they needed to go to Adam's earlier point about the, the maze that hospitals often are. And uh, whereas it wasn't his in job in his job description and the other security guards, people never even mentioned them. they didn't notice them because they just, they just watched people walk through a metal detector or whatever it might be. But this guy, took that extra step. And so that helped us say, Hey, that's an opportunity to improve this experience. And then started rolling out just what this person was doing naturally as part of what the job responsibilities could be for the other security guards in terms of how they can contribute.
0: I love that example. Cause it's just so pure ethnography. I mean, it's just like, you know, it's one of those things where you could interview a hundred people and probably not get that, but by going and doing observations, yeah. you say, Oh, look, there's that guy. And then you ask people, like, oh, yeah, that guy's great. <laughs> well, why didn't you tell me that to begin with? Uh, because it, it, it's so mundane that they didn't even think about it, right? It's, you know, at my school where I teach, it's, you know, Maria in the uh, student cafeteria. Everyone loves Maria. And I said, if the school wants to raise money, quit putting pictures of faculty on fundraisers and put pictures of Maria there and you'll probably raise, you know, $100 million because everyone loves Maria. It's like that kind of thing wow. that you can that you get at by doing the work you do around, you know, being there, you know, and, and being in the environment to see what goes on and not just being reliant on what people tell you what goes on.
1: Yeah, exactly. It, it, it It's the, it's the combination of all of it. And, and that's, that's definitely what we always aim to do is can we get, understand from ethnography and observation, understand from what people tell us. And, and, it, you know, what's interesting is that So many people think about, especially when they're trying to understand an experience, they base everything on perhaps a survey and, and then they talk to the frontline staff and get their perspective as to what's going on. What are our, what are our challenges and and things of that nature. And, um, without that perspective and understanding of ethnography and the, the, the view of that person you're serving, the customer, the patient, whoever it might be, um, you're not going to get that that true understanding hmm. and to really understand your opportunities to improve the experience.
2: Yeah. If, if I can, uh, I'm kind of curious too. I want to flip the question a little bit to to come back to something that we said a bit earlier. Um, in, in a broad sense of how do hospitals or clinics or healthcare providers know to come to cast and hue to get design studio work to rethink their experience? Like what 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 happens in their organization that have you found like, oh actually we we need help with this, right? And design is going to help us. Design thinking is going to help us redo this. What what happens in yeah. that? How do we get there?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. So going, going back to the first question or one of the first questions, we talked about cap scores and how yeah. Cast and Hugh got into this business, or, or one of the elements that led us into this business. And when we first started, our first thought was you know what? This is great because cap scores are, are publicly published. We'll just look up the cap scores, find the, the organizations with the lowest scores, and then call them and very nicely say, hey, we're Cast Hugh, we're going to help you raise your scores. What, what one insight over the five or six years we've been doing this now is that that happens now and then. But the reality is the reason <laughs> my my opinion is it's not the reality. It's my opinion is that the reason people have low scores is because they don't focus on them and they don't focus on the experience because most of our work comes with organizations that are already delivering strong experiences. And they're looking at how they can stay ahead and how they can get better. Um, so with that said, I, I think that the impetus be a couple things number one they they may see areas where uh they know there are challenges but they they're they know that they don't know exactly what that core uh issue is behind it and they see an Uh, opportunity to improve um competitive issues are are often the case and you know where they just see that perhaps they have competitors in their in their market that are doing things differently that patients are talking to them about, and they recognize that it's not just a quick fix, but they need to really understand the experience they're delivering and, and, and how they can, uh, how they can, you know, really compete better. And, you know, finally, I think there is, and and believe it or not, it's slowly but surely getting there, but there is a focus on this idea of consumerism. You know, I talked about the, the gentleman from Intermountain from Disney, and there's a few other stories like that. And uh Piedmont has a chief customer officer too, their hospital system in Atlanta. And there's there's a handful of others. And um and so that's they're, there's a they're on a journey to consumerism because we thought it would happen really quickly, uh, maybe you know, seven or eight years ago, that people would take more of a um personal stake in their healthcare decision making and, and how they look at their healthcare. It's been a much slower process, but it's getting there. And, uh, and so that's, that's the other impetus often now that, that we talk to folks and they just recognize that, uh, if they're going to, especially the way the health systems are, if they're going to create an environment where they're successful, they need some of those elements of consumers and they need people that are loyal. They need people that become advocates and actually talk about their experience. And it gets back to the fact that, uh, the care is table stakes. Um, they're not going to go get the care if they don't think you have good doctors or, or physicians. And they feel like most hospitals and health systems have good physicians. There's you know uh, some, some, some examples of uh, that, that don't fit that, but for the most part, that's what, that's what consumers tell us and patients tell us. So there's definitely that need to create that consumer centric experience and understand where their gaps are. and And I think that's, that's, when I have conversations with people, reach out to us, that's, that's most often what happens and it becomes a strategic objective. And that's, that's when they're going to be most successful is when it's something that the, uh, that, that the organization is seen as a need across, uh, across their, all their service lines.
0: It is fascinating to see how one of the things being brought forward by the whole COVID-19 thing is that hospitals are, I've heard stories of hospitals laying people off yeah. right now because their elective procedures, which they make money on are no longer being scheduled because of COVID-19. And so they're not making the money they normally would through those procedures. So they have to lay people off, which is kind of a weird thing about our healthcare system. At D- of a time of a pandemic, you're laying people off in the yeah. hospital. But setting that aside, it does go into the competitiveness around certain kind of procedures. I mean, I can, you know, we're here in Boston, I can go to Dana-Farber if right. there's a cancer situation, but then you have advertisements for Anderson or Mayo or, or whomever that's, that's they're, they're trying to compete Um, to bring in people to get care through their institutions. So you have almost these, not franchise sites, but you have Mayo in Arizona. You have Uh Anderson, you know, from Houston, wherever. You have, you know, Boston hospitals, you know, Dana-Farber, wherever. And so it really is a kind of a fascinatingly weird landscape to think about hospitals competing to try to save people's lives, right, at the
1: end of the day by providing treatment. It really is. And uh, yeah, every element of what you just said is interesting. I think of I've been thinking about this, the effects of COVID-19 quite a bit, because not only are you seeing, you know, they're seeing lower reimbursement rates when they have the COVID-19 patients. And so they're not, the revenue's down there. They're not able to do these elective surgeries, but then what's, you know, what's happening in a lot of places in the country, because, you know, knock on wood, there's been so far, we believe, some success in flattening the curve. Uh, the hospitals aren't uh, the hospitals that are incredibly prepared for COVID nineteen aren't getting as many patients as they thought, and so they're not doing elective surgeries. They don't have many patients. A lot of people aren't going to the hospital, and it is a weird situation. And uh, it'll be inter- I'm really following what's going to happen. Is there going to be any more help for hospitals with the the stimulus package, and you know what else might happen in that space? Um, and then the, to your other point, the competitive area, it, it is really interesting and, um, competing to save lives. Yeah, it's, it, but it's where we are today. And, and, you know, we have, you mentioned Mayo down here in Arizona. We also have, we have an MD Anderson in Arizona. We have cancer treatment centers of America, just to name, Right. Few. and we also have other, you know, hospitals offering that care. So there's, and, and what's still interesting is that, um, People, uh, patients don't often know that they can, I think of it less as competing, but at least as patients have choices, especially when they get a, a very serious diagnosis like cancer and how do they think about that? Because how do they look at what their options are? Because there's still much of that paternalistic hangover, if you will, where their primary care physician says go to see this guy at MD Anderson or whatever it might be. And that's where they go and they don't get a second opinion. And, um, and I think while competition is for saving lives, uh, certainly has its, you know, interesting thoughts. Uh, it's also a benefit I think when, especially a place like Boston where you all are in the Massachusetts area and, you know, down here in Arizona, where you have so many great options for care so there's, there's the positives and negatives of it for sure. Yeah, absolutely.
0: And one of the areas that I know we had talked about before in our pre-call, we are talking about that Adam brought up was this idea of constraint-driven innovation. So, mm-hmm. I mean, when you're, talk, when you're trying to help hospitals innovate, like well, how does this relate to that environment, like trying to innovate what they deliver in a, in a healthcare environment?
1: Yeah, I think that there's a couple ways we think about it and, and we'll often work towards, uh, setting up an objective with a constraint when we go into our, our design work and a couple things, a couple of areas where that helps us. It's, it's gets people to really focus in on their thinking, um, and gets people to hopefully think outside the box. And then, and, and so for instance, one example I could think of is, uh, we are working with a hospital system in the Midwest around their, their most acute patients who often end up either spending many months at that location or moving there from all over the country and even the world. And, uh, they wanted to improve that experience. They recognized actually they didn't have any sort of experience for people. So they've got people that are coming in for transplants or the most serious, uh, subspecialty cancer treatment, and they're not helping them, uh, you know, transition to this uh, town in the middle of the Midwest that they've probably never been to. And one of the things that came up was that the solution was, you know what, we we'll build a hotel on campus. That's what we need to do. Right. And they had had some kind of dormitory type setups before, but they didn't have them anymore. And so we had to set that constraint around you, we have to think about this without being able to build a hotel and, but that helped them create new ideas, you know, such as, well, could we create just a kitchen so that they have a living space with, you know, uh, on the campus or, you know, what can we create to help them really understand the town and help them get around and know where they can do their laundry, buy their groceries and all these things for their, for their hotels. And what we found is, as we went through that process of testing, because even though we had, we co-created with that constraint, the staff and many of the stakeholders were like, well, no, we have to have a hotel. So, I mean, we'll, we'll go through this for you guys, but we have to have a hotel. And as we went through the process and tested and prototyped and tested, you know, we found that the, the patients and family members were just like, no, it's fine. I'll, I'll stay at the courtyard or, or whatever the hotel right. is nearby, but these all these tools will just improve my experience, you know, tenfold. And so the, that's that's what we try to get to, and then maybe we can add a hotel later. But now we've created all of these other experiences that are going to complement what we think is the the easy the easy solution.
0: It reminds me, I was actually years back, I attended a training in, at Mayo in Rochester, and while I was there for a few days, uh, it, one of the things that struck me was I was walking out of my hotel room. To the elevator and there were wheelchairs there by the elevator. I hadn't seen that since I was in Las Vegas, right? You know, they're in Vegas for a different reason because old people go to gamble right here. They're there because so many people go to Rochester, Minnesota to get treatment. And so then I started talking with people around town about how do they see themselves in relation to the patients who come there? And they saw themselves as almost frontline workers in healthcare. The entire community saw their role as rallying around healthcare and actually ended up writing a blog about this. And then I got contacted by someone from university of Minnesota, Rochester. They started to do a story on it through their class, you know, having their students go out and interview people around the community about how they see themselves as um, points of care for the people visiting Rochester. And it was very much like you were talking about. It was this, we're, you know, we're here. It's, I was thinking if you if you took people from that community and stuck them on the hospital campus, I think they would lose experience because people who were there to get care got to know the bartenders, the wait staff, the hospital, the, the hotel people. It became their second community of sorts.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think I, I I think that's that's a really great example. And, and you know, Rochester's a, a I've actually never been there, but I've, I've read a lot about it and the role that Mayo plays there. And I, I could see that that happening and how you rally around people. And uh, and that's important to patients because the, other, the interesting insight, one of the other insights that came out of that work was just people, it, when you're getting medical care that serious, whether you're the patient or the family member slash caretaker, you don't care about anything else about care. And so one of the insights was they do want us to play a role in helping them because they're not even thinking about groceries. They're just going to get whatever they can from the vending machine or whatever it might be. And, and they're just doing the minimum possible. Cause they don't have, you know, we, we all know we only have so much room in our, in our minds to make decisions and, and things of that nature. And so that became a big part of that project is how can we give people the guidance that they don't even know they need. Right.
2: Yeah. I think that's one of the, that's one of the, like, I mean, perhaps the coolest spaces in terms of like. Uh, what we might we might call anticipatory design right and how do we anticipate the needs of, of community members you know or patients or, or folks or stakeholders in, in within a a constrained space itself right of a healthcare experience where you're caring for an, a, a sick sick loved one um and so you're not yeah you don't want to make thirty five decisions right
1: uh, yeah absolutely you want yeah. everything to focus on your loved one
2: mm-hmm. um i th- i think so i i'm Maybe if we can also talk real quickly, um, as, as the idea of the anatomy of the experience blueprint of one of the, the kind of the outputs that you do with your work and, and the three elements that, uh, your website shows us are emotions, wayfinding and continua, which are three cool sounding terms. They sound even cooler together because it's like, how do I feel? How do I get there? And what happens afterwards? <laughs> you know? yeah.
1: Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I'd love I, to hear kind of know, about those, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. So, so experience blueprints are often one of the key deliverables in our project. So we'll go through a process of understanding the journey through journey mapping, ethnography interviews. Uh, and then we'll go into that co-creation that we touched on a little bit. And there's a lot of ideas and a lot of insights that come out of that. And we summarize that as, as almost the, if the journey map is to look at the past, the experience blueprint is a look at what the future should be. And, um, and so one of the key elements, uh, there's several key elements in the Experience Blueprint. So one of them is Continua. And Continua, we think of as experience themes that can really shape the touch points and journeys. And we want them, and you know, it's the plural of, of, of Continuum. And so we want, based on our, what we've learned from our journeys, what we've learned through co-creation, what are the themes that should be consistent throughout the whole process? It's almost like when you're looking at it from a brand perspective, the brand values or communication values that we want to be consistent. And so, we'll look at Continua, and it helps us understand um, what what needs to be there. And and then helps guide us both with the current experience that we're creating and what's in that experience blueprint to ensure that we're being consistent throughout. Are there, you know, one of the continua might be empathy or it might be um, developing understanding or giving the patient control. And how are we ensuring that through each phase of that journey that that, that continua is there. So um, it really, you know, how do we create something that, 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 expresses the needs of the patient or the customer throughout and to ensure that not only for these experiences, but then down the road, Post, Cast and Hue, and they're creating new experiences, is it rolling up to that continua? Because we know that this represents the needs that are most important to those we serve. Um, wayfinding is is another element that we have on our experience blueprints. And it's interesting because it's, uh, it's both hey, where do I go next? Because we've talked a lot, especially in healthcare, how important that is in terms of how do I know uh, where the next office is? You know, Gary Mayo is a great example. They do some really cool things with Wayfinding up in up in Rochester in terms of how right. people understand how to get to the next office. And it's such a huge campus and things of that nature. Um, but it's also, we also think of Wayfinding as just, how do I know what's next? uh what's going to happen next in my experience how how are we communicating to people and giving them that sense of control that we touched on earlier and so that's an important element of the experience blueprint so at each step of the journey each touch point are we being uh are we being you know focused and and um understand communicating to people what's going to happen next so that they have that control and so that helps us there um I apologize, Adam. What was the first one you asked about?
2: Uh, emotions was the first one.
1: Oh, emotions. Well, yeah. And emotions, sorry, I, that, that, that's the most important. So I should have thought of that first. But yeah, uh, you know, emotions is a big part of our work. We we really want to understand that emotional journey that people are taking, whether it's in healthcare or making a purchase or whatever it might be. And so um, we'll look at that emotional journey. What are the key emotions they're feeling today? When do the emotions... um when, when do the emotions get really positive, and when do they get negative? Because that helps us. Um, you know, that helps us get to a point where we can, if we could take some of that emotions and, and, and bring them more towards the positive area, then we know we're going to create a better experience for people. And so, what experiences are going to lead to that? And so, part of the experience blueprint just to help people get in, you know, get in the right mind frame of what they want to happen at each phase of the journey, or each even each touch point in certain certain times, is talking about what's the current emotions, what are the what are they feeling today in the journey? So reminding them that, and then where do they want to go based on our research? And so that helps us think about when we're designing those experiences and, and thinking about that overall new experience to focus on those emotions. And it's a, it's a, it's a filter. Is this new experience going to help people get relief? Is this going to help people feel in control, um, as opposed to being scared and helpless or abandoned? So, Emotions is something that that we really work with our clients to think about throughout the entire process and and make that part of their um, part of their evaluation process, both for current journeys and, and moving forward.
0: In the midst of everything that's going on right now with the healthcare pandemic, you know, you talked about the issue of funding, which is obviously a huge one. Uh, how else, you know, six, eight, twelve months after this pandemic situation passes? How do you see your job or your role at Casting Hue, your organization's role? Do you see it changing at all? Do you see it? See hospitals trying to embrace it more? Do you see uh, a different orientation to the healthcare providers since so much attention is being put in on them right now as these heroic figures? Right. Have you all been kind of gaming this out internally about, you know, not only what are we trying to do right now for our customers and clients, but also what do we need to be doing down the road to to serve whatever gaps or whatever needs they're going to have after this is all over
1: yeah absolutely um and we've done a lot of thinking about that and i can tell you that we don't have any answers but perfect well thank you very much <laughs> <been> <laughs> well no we but we have some ideas but you know i don't think any of us are going to have any answers no no yet. no so, one has any answers so it's it's the it's 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 such a crazy time and and, and uh and Unprecedented to say the least, right? Uh, But yeah, we're definitely thinking about that because one thing we do know, or I feel pretty comfortable saying, is that for all of us as consumers or patients or or engaging with brands and and other organizations, our our perceptions and motivations are going to change. Right. What we just don't know is how they're going to change and how that's going to affect our behavior. And but that's where I think that will be able to play a role for our clients is help them understand that and help them understand how they need to shift their experiences, how they need to shift, how they communicate, um, how they need to think differently about their customer base or patient base or however it might be, because I don't know how people are going to make decisions. I think there's, uh, you know, we talked about the revenue challenges and one of the things that hospitals and health systems will certainly be thinking about is like well how can we get some of those elective surgeries back what do we have to do to make our or to to, to make our facilities safe for people where people feel comfortable there um, what's, how are people going to make those decisions and so i think there's a lot going to be a lot to think about there and then how to just how, how are people going to engage with, with any organization moving forward as as this pandemic hopefully goes down a path of, of going away, but it sounds like it's going to be stages. And so what happens at each stage? I think think all of our, all of us as consumers and and our perceptions and our, our behaviors are going to be affected.
0: I think, what you know, as three people here who study people, you know, people are either predictably unpredictable or unpredictably predictable and that we don't know what they're going to do, but they're going to do it in patterns we can expect. And so, you know, to what extent are, you know, I would imagine that there's going to be a period in which Once people are able to go back to the emergency room without, you know, for other reasons than infection, they might be more patient because there's this greater appreciation that might last for, you know, about four weeks. It was like in Boston after September 11th, the Yankees would come to play in Fenway Park and they would get cheered. That was weird. Because mm-hmm. who cheers the Yankees in Boston? And then you knew things were back to normal when the Yankees sucks chance started once right, again. right. <laughs> you, know, you had that shift back into, okay, now I'm just angry that I'm waiting in the emergency room. Yeah. Um, and, and now, mm-hmm. now I'm, you know, I we used to associate the smell of hospitals as being like kind of impersonal. And now we might associate that smell with being safe. Yeah. Hmm. So those things are going to shift for the interim and maybe at some point they'll shift back. Right. Or maybe we're going to establish new patterns who knows, but some pattern will be emerging. And it's like, as you said, it's hard to know which one it's going to be. I do have the answers by the way, and people want to Venmo me. Yeah. It's like, you know, you know what, 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 what answers those are. Once you give money, I'll I'll give you the answers. It's almost like a betting hotline. Perfect. Perfect. I'll (laughs) I'll be,
1: I'll be right on the website
0: when we're done here. (laughs) I mean, Adam, what do you think about that? You know, in terms of like, you know, you're an anthropologist, you study people, what what are your thoughts about the predictable unpredictability or the unpredictable predictability of people?
2: I mean, I think it's, it's an interesting question. And, um, you know, I was reading some, some articles, blog posts yesterday about, you know, what are some economists, what are some geographers, you know, thoughts about what might be coming next, you know? And so, um, I mean, I'm interesting, just for example, like Charles Kenny, um, is, is, you know, he's, he's worked for the center for global development and at the world bank for a while. And, um, I don't know. I mean, I'm thinking about this also, like, on a, a, I guess on an urban and a cities level too, of like, we might know what people do, but like when, the, when the scales change, it, it really becomes interesting too. You know, it's like, we might think of how individuals in a community act and like, we tend to see communities kind of come out more, right. The idea of cheering for the Yankees or, or the idea that, that, um, around the Mayo campus, right. That bartenders are kind of on one level of a kind of first responder, you know, right, um, or a secondary responder at least. Right. Um, and you know, so, but thinking about this too, as, as it gets bigger, right. And how do cities respond? You know, I'm, I'm kind of just reflecting on how my city of Somerville is, is connected to, but different than Boston. Um, but like we're, we get wrapped up together in Massachusetts in the Northeast, um, and how that might differ from Arizona and or Seattle. Right. Um, or Texas. And I think that's kind of interesting too, where it's like, you know, are there patterns that we're seeing at different scales of how people respond, you know? And like, I think that we are seeing positive changes and positive patterns at a local Level, right? I think that's great. You know, I think it's great to see how community does seem to come out at times like this, right? I mean, I'm even thinking of the, the next door app that I see people on all the time, right? Since we don't talk to our neighbors anymore, we at least have an app that we can pretend that we do, you know, <laughs> and uh, and share what's happening, uh, uh, you know, around that. I think Gary might be one of the last people in the United States that talks to his neighbor over the fence. Um, you know, we actually
0: yeah, we actually have all of our kids <laughs> sheltering in place together. I think if one of us goes down, we're all going to go down. That's fair. So, you know. yeah, we, we actually do uh, talk to, we actually had a, a Easter Acon, which I guess, you know, if, if, if you see a pandemic erupt in Stowe, that would be our fault. That's
2: <laughs> in the Easter egg, right. right. Um, I don't know, but just, so just this idea too, I think it's like really worth kind of contemplating how it happens, like local wise. And then also thinking about in these, these bigger scales of like, how are we seeing it at a state or a city or a state or a regional level too. Um, and I think that's going to give us some really interesting ways to think about, you know, how do we also just contemplate the experience of how do we digest things like news and information, right? We want it locally. We yeah. also seek it nationally, regionally, too. And, like, you know, which of those news informational channels makes us feel well? Which of us makes us feel ill? You know, and how do we, again, sew those seams together between like local community and national level news, right? And, uh, and so, uh, yeah, again, I don't know what the answer is there, but like, to me, too, again, this question of scale I think is really important and interesting, especially when we're looking at something like COVID that is and uh, affects every level of scale we can think about, right? Um, so, Big design thinking, I guess you know, from from yeah. local to global.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think there will be some interesting regional differences because just from watching the news and and talking sure. to my friends in different areas and and how it's affected different areas, it's you know you see the 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 places that are most dense like brooklyn and 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 some of the other elements of new york city where people are getting out and and cheering which is so awesome to see and and that and and i'm sure that helps bring the community together um we're much less dense here in arizona and in scottsdale so much more of like a suburb so we're not i I get out and cheer, but no one else seems to join me. But uh, is that uncomfortable
0: at all? When I mean, you're outside by yourself, just kind of cheering.
1: Not in this. Now that I, you know, day 35 at home, it's like it's all dead. <laughs> it doesn't uh, matter. Uh, <laughs> but oh, it's, it's Steve. He just does that. <laughs> yeah, so. don't worry about it. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. And I, I remember you know, now I wasn't thinking about this in the same way back, at, you know, in the nine eleven, 11, I, the, the Yankee example is a great example, but even I was living in Los Angeles at the time and there were changes, you know, we weren't personally affected in that city, but there were changes to how people engaged with each other. Uh, but I'd remember them not lasting as long as I thought they would. And so, and there were some things about that, right. lasted, but what's going to, what's going to be sustained and, and what won't be. And this is so different than anything any of us have experienced in our lives that, that, it, it. Who knows? But I think I think there will be some things that there certainly will sustain, and there will be some things that are like our our love hate relationship with the Yankees that that may just be temporary.
0: We all do. We all we all we all love to hate them, right? I mean, and, and there's one thing that's constant. It might be that, or you know, <laughs> the Dodgers. Hard to say. But maybe once baseball comes back around, we can be thankful to engage in those pastimes and Absolutely. see what kind of new normal. It is. I mean, and this is going to keep you busy for sure at yeah. Cast and Hue uh, with uh, all of these emerging challenges. And, you know, the uh, the good news, I guess, is that there's going to be lots of opportunity for engaging customers and others. And in, in this newfound empathy that we've all uncovered uh, for each other.
1: Let's yeah. hope. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much, Steve. It's been great. Yeah, what a great conversation. Thank you guys so much for having me on. Mm.
0: We want to thank Steve Koch from Cast and Hue for taking us through the Cast and Hue process of using human-centered design to help healthcare organizations create better and more integrated experiences. Clearly right now is an important time to create better healthcare experiences for everyone involved in the healthcare ecosystem. That includes all the stakeholders, no matter how high in the hierarchy, no matter how much education they've received, or to what tasks they're performing. There are no small tasks in healthcare or in any organization. We appreciate Steve talking with us about how Cast and Hue tries to capture that entire patient journey and employee journey to really develop better experiences. Make sure to find Cast and Hue at Cast and Hue, all one word. and follow Steve on LinkedIn as well. And thanks again for joining us in the Experience by Design Studios. You're always welcome, and we like to have as many visitors as possible, so don't be a stranger. Let us know how you are listening and liking the podcast at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We always love to hear from you and look forward to hearing from you and how you're listening and enjoying the podcast. We look forward to seeing you again next week in the Experience by Design studios as well. It seems trite to say that this is a moment of great changes, and there are plenty of experiences to explore as we navigate whatever this moment means and however we're all experiencing it. Wherever you are, we hope that you are healthy, we hope that you are hanging in there, and we hope that you are staying helpful. See you all next week on Experience by Design podcast. Bye you.